the time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters, is up next. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the ninth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about hate and fear in politics, how fear and anger can endanger democracy. We'll talk about hate and fear in politics, whether they undermine democracy, how panic and fear make space for abandoning the rule of law and the regular order, and how, when we demonize the opposition, it makes room for extraordinary measures to stop them. Um, Our phone line is out today, so we'll be taking your questions by email during the second half of the show. Stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host today for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Joining us by phone from New York City is Joanne Freeman. Joanne is the professor of history and American studies at Yale University. She co-hosts the podcast Backstory, and she's the author of the book, The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress and the Road to the Civil War. Welcome, Joanne. Thanks for having me. And joining us in the studio today is Steve Wessler. Steve is a Maine human rights educator, trainer, and advocate specializing in conflict resolution. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. Um, I think I might ask you each, starting with you, Joanne, to just give our listeners a couple of sentences about your work in this area, hate and fear in politics, so that they'll understand where your perspective is grounded. Oh, sure. Um, Well, I'm a political historian, um, and I write a lot about political violence and um, political emotions. I mean, I tend to focus on early America, but the book that I just published shows how um, in the U.S. Congress, uh, physical violence, uh, Southern slaveholders were using physical threats of physical violence in Congress, and sometimes actual physical violence, to intimidate uh, Northerners into not threatening uh, slavery in any way. So part of what I write about and part of what I'm interested in really is how threats and fear and sometimes violence can really shape politics. Well, it seems right on for our conversation today. Steve, what about you? What's your yeah. angle on this? Um, well, it's a a, a different um, starting place uh, quite a long time ago. Uh, well over 20 years, the attorney general in the state asked me to create the civil rights unit in the main attorney general's office, which was a unit that brought people to court who committed hate crimes. So I started um, by um, addressing people whose anger had moved from from words to uh, serious violence. And then uh, realized that uh, prosecution was really important, but was not particularly effective at prevention. So, created a nonprofit that focused on these issues. And now, uh, I uh, work on my own, working with other people 
much of it being conflict resolution in communities and schools and a lot of it focusing on trying to reduce the bias and anger and the risk of violence toward immigrants. So right here in Maine, right on the ground? Yeah. Uh, a lot of it here, but I've done, I've done work uh, across Europe and in other places. Oh, but, interesting. Yeah. Great. Well, um, in reading up for the show today, we find um, experiments showing that everyone's political views become more conservative when they're provoked to become fearful. We saw it happen after 9-11, for example. Politicians have probably been using fear-based messaging to craft campaign advertising for as long as there have been campaigns. Think that dark lighting and the sinister music. Using fear and anger is probably taught in Campaign Messaging 101, but the present moment seems outside the ordinary bounds. Um, Joanne, let me put it to you first. Is it different now? Well, in some ways, just as you're saying, if you take the really long historical view, you can, certainly in U.S. history, you can go back to the beginning of the Republic, and, for example, you can see in the late, 1790s, conspiracy theories, uh, threats and fear of violence, um, each side othering the other side, you know, you're un-American, you're going to destroy the republic, actually fear of foreign influence in that case. Um, You can see a lot of the same um, things that are going on now in the 1790s, you can see it in the late 1850s, you could probably argue that you can see some of that back in the 1960s. Um, and I'm sure there are other eras as well. So there are times in American history, I think, when um, some kind of fundamental issue is under debate. And during those times, some of the things that I just listed come into play. What's distinct about this moment to me is the ways in which the political process and the actual institutions of government um, and, and norms, actually, political norms to an extreme degree, are, don't feel stable. And so I think that's um, not necessarily making us more afraid than anyone has been in the past, but that's kind of flavoring the, the, the shade of fear uh, and anxiety that we have in our current time. Why do you think that's happening now, the, um, the breaching of established norms? Well, I mean, I think it's partly because there is a president who was partly elected with the idea that he would shake things up. Right. <laughs> and, you know, there are a good number of norms that have been violated in a lot of different ways that I think probably a lot of people didn't understand were not written down somewhere as, you know, this is what this is how it should be done. I think should is the, is the word. This is how it should be done. And there are many things that now are not happening that people are realizing, and I think people of all kinds, all the way up to, you know, people, power holders in government and constitutional scholars, that there's less control over this system than people thought there were before because there was always an assumption, and it generally held true, that there were certain kinds of norms in American politics that people follow. So what do you do when that's not the case? And I think that's a big question mark right now. Yep. Steve, from your perspective, how different is this moment? You've been doing this a long time. It's it's different um, in a significant way. So if I back up to why I left a career as a lawyer to focus on prevention is in probably the first four or five months of dealing with hate crimes, I realized 
when we backed up an investigation to find out where the violence started, it invariably, in schools or communities, began with the routine use of degrading language plus one other thing. And that other thing was that nobody spoke up. And then the, the people who say those things um, misunderstand the silence as approval when, in fact, most people are just scared or nervous about speaking up. But when people in power, whether they're the president of the United States, whether they're a, um, a sports star, whether they are in business or entertainment, uh, they start expressing um, bias. It, it sends a message to people that it's, it's okay to do what we've been doing, and then they will start pushing it, which is, uh, I think, a significant part of why hate crimes appear to have increased over between um, 2016 and the present. Yeah. Historian David Bennett is quoted as saying that the most persistent fear in American life has been fear of outsiders. Um, and there's sort of a long history, as you were alluding to, Joanne, about, you know, from the 19th century, fear of Catholics um, and the antebellum South, the North-South divide, um, other immigrants in waves, Italians, Slavs, Jews, um, the history of the Ku Klux Klan, even here in Maine, very active. Um, through the McCarthy era, you know, the fear of foreign ideology from anarchism to Marxism. I mean, is this the kind of thing that just comes back in waves over time? And what's the trigger for these different swellings up, Joanne, do you think? Well, you just used the word waves. <laughs> so I'd say that's part of it, right? I think when um, either when there actually are waves of immigrants coming from foreign countries or people have a sense that there are waves of people coming from foreign countries, that, that certainly particularly if, um, as Steve just said, people in power uh, are amplifying that idea and, and putting fear behind it, um, I, I think that does raise anxiety. I think part of the reason it raises anxiety, you know, there's, of course, some kind of primal thing that people are afraid of what they perceive to be outsiders and are nervous about people that they assume have loyalties that are not to the nation, which is where some of the anti-Catholic bias in American history comes from, that, oh, well, they're loyal to the Pope. They're not loyal to the United States. Mm -hmm. So some of that uh, is true. Um, I totally forgot where I was headed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not good when that happens on the radio. <laughs> well, we were talking about waves. Are these different waves? What is triggering this, you know? Oh, right. Okay, thank you. Um, what I was headed towards was... Um, Part of the reason why these fears rise up is because um, a democratic politics, the, the very things that make democracy wonderful, meaning that people have rights, meaning that they can demand their rights, meaning that they have some sense of entitlement to those rights, meaning that there's a system in which the people have power, those strengths, I think, to people who feel that their power is threatened can also be vulnerabilities. You know, I mean, a democratic politics is wonderful and it's also sometimes messy and so a little bit of of what goes on in these moments of, of upset 
uh, is that people are afraid of losing power and they're responding in that way. And that's partly because in a democratic politics, in one way or another, the system is set up so that you actually are competing in ideally fair and free contests to see who, for a limited amount of time, has power. When people get scared, though, do they um, start to sort of disrespect that fair competition? Like I've seen some writers talking about how in a functioning and stable democracy, you have to sometimes let the other side win, believing yeah. that the next time <laughs> you'll have your fair chance. But now it seems like we're each side is really scared to let the other side win because they think they may um, bring on catastrophic uh, changes in American life. Is Do you see that, Joanne? Well, yes. I mean, I don't think that particular fear is unique to now. I think you're absolutely right that for the political system to work, there has to be an understanding that it's a system and that it's grounded on public opinion and public opinion voices itself through the system and then you have a winner and you have a loser and then you have another contest and you see what happens next time around. Um, and it is true. Right now we're at this point where um, each side is totally convinced that the other side is fundamentally un-American. It's, it's extreme versions of otherness that we're doing. It's not the first time that we've done that. But one of the things that was a major fear, actually, certainly in the early uh, Republic, the early years, the late 18th century, even, you could even go back to the, the first real presidential election, was fear of foreign influence, um, again, coming in and um, sort of milking the vulnerabilities in a democratic politics. So that it's almost as though we have um, a, a sort of, what's the word, perfect storm? <laughs> Uh, of, of factors right now that are sort of lined up and playing, strumming all those strings. There's way too many metaphors in that sense. <laughs> strumming all those strings of, of, of anxiety uh, that are traditional in American politics. I, I mean, I, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, the, the point you just made, Joanne, is, is important. But it's, it's also important to realize that even when we weren't in a wave of 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 anger and violence, uh, the level of bias, harassment, discrimination, and violence toward particular groups, um, including immigrants, but very much including LGBTQ people, um, toward Jews, toward black people, toward um, toward Asians, toward people who are coming from south of the border. Uh, it's it's there. It's. Um, oh yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not denying that right. at all. So I, I totally agree with you. I was just sort of taking the long historical view. But yeah, other uh, can be defined in many ways. And right now, it's, there are certainly many different populations that are that are being othered in dangerous ways to me. Right, and and right now in America, um, the foreign-born population is at an historically high level due to um, Latin American immigration in Maine. There's Latin American and African populations surging. Um, so race and, race and ethnicity is cer certainly underneath some of the fear and anger, right, that you see, Steve? I, I think so. The, um, you know, the, the surge, I think, has significantly decreased because the, the president isn't 
allowing people to to come in um, mm-hmm. other than uh, people who are highly educated and people who are white um, uh, but it's that fear has has been there um, and the, the, there's been a long history of fear of black people and their fear um, of Jews um, in different ways. In, in main history, I think the Ku Klux Klan targeted Franco-Americans for a while, didn't they? Uh, they, Catholics generally, yeah. and uh, there were at least two Catholic churches that were burned to the ground uh, yeah. in main history by Protestants. We'll take a little break here. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WRUFM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic is hate and fear in politics. Our guests this morning are Joanne Freeman, professor of history and American studies at Yale University, and Steve Wessler, a Maine human rights educator, trainer, and advocate specializing in conflict resolution. He resides right here in Bar Harbor, very near the studio. Um, We were talking about uh, race and ethnicity as a basis for some of this fear. And Joanne was saying earlier about fear of foreign interference. And it's kind of ironic that we have uh, sort of a foreign interference angle to our current threat now where, um, you know, Putin and whether there was collusion and what role Russia played in America's election is a, kind of a foreign interference angle. But it's not one that's being um, raising the same level of anxiety, I guess, as the raising the immigration question. Well, it, it's not raising ang- the anxiety of the people who are really angry about immigrants, um, other than they're perhaps angry that they think that uh, Democrats are are making up the stories about. Uh, Russian and perhaps other countries who are tampering with the electoral system. What do you think about that that juxtaposition of those two issues right now, Joanne? Well, I mean, I, I this gets us, I guess, to our larger issue, which really is about fear and anger. But yeah, I think, and I also think that's a factor in moments like this when um, you really do get conspiracy think, thinking in a major kind of a way so that um, particularly given that institutions of government now are being questioned in all kinds of ways, uh, one can come forward and say, no, really, I have proof. There's foreign interference. And if you're in that kind of moment of conspiracy thinking, it's very hard to get beyond it, right? It's hard to contradict conspiracy thinking because if you do, then you're part of the conspiracy. So um, some of what we're seeing now is, I think, as Steve is alluding to, part of that as well. We had a, a conversation about conspiracy theories on our show last month, and it's certainly true that both progressives and conservatives have their own conspiracy adherence. But um, ling- linguistics researcher Anat Schenker says that the characteristic most predictive of a person's political leanings is his or her tolerance for ambiguity. People who like certainty and clear answers, according to Schenker, tend toward conservative preferences. Do you think that makes conservative voters more susceptible to fear-based messages, or is this a tactic that's used equally on both sides historically? Joanne? Wow. Um, I mean, I think 
to some degree, you could say emotion and fear and anger are powerful in politics, and particularly in a democratic politics. Um, so that they're they're not limited to one side. But again, I'm not a sociologist. I'm I'm not a you know I, I this is not. Um, my area of study, or I'm not a linguist, mm-hmm. um, but my hunch would be that if indeed, as these studies suggest, that people who tend towards a conservative politics tend to be less comfortable with ambiguity and, and more comfortable with um, a certain kind of order, then that would suggest that a, that a fear-based politics is going to be particularly effective within that group. But that's me speaking <laughs> as a historian gazing at other people's work but right. there's certainly a logic to that do you see this in your on the ground practice at all steve i don't i don't really see that and i think what complicates this is that we're seeing um traditional democrats um turning toward trump it's really not clear that they um, if if trump's politics disappeared in some number of years um where where they would go mm-hmm. um uh, they they feel that that Trump is talking about their fears, but I'm not sure that they've uh, they had those fears while they were voting um, for Democratic candidates. It's it's pretty interesting to try to figure that out. Do you have a thought on? Uh, my thought is is that many of those people, um, even if they were whether they were supporting Republican candidates or Democrat candidates, were harboring um, deep, disturbing biases toward not just newcomers, not just immigrants, but to other groups as well, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. felt that it was awful to do so. I mean, that other people thought it was awful to do so. Um, And then suddenly a president comes along who who expresses God. degrading language about entire large groups of people, much of which is completely accurate. And, um, and that, that is really fulfilling. You found like suddenly somebody is saying, yeah, we were right all along. Those, I, those people aren't good people. I can hear you nodding over the phone, Joanne. <laughs> yes, I am nodding over the phone. Um, because, you know, fundamentally, America is grounded on in a sense, racism, right? It's grounded on slavery. There is a long-standing tradition in the United States um, of using, misusing, attacking people who, number one, are not white, and number two, who are not men. And that's a long-standing tradition, and I totally agree. You know, this is not something that was born two years ago. So, number one, we're talking about a really long-standing pattern in American history. And then, number two, when you, even if you're just focusing on party politics, some of what's going on now uh, certainly predates the current administration. You know, what we're seeing now, partly, again, as Steve just suggested, has to do with someone really in power, and particularly a president, um, sort of endorsing that kind of thinking and, and proclaiming that kind of thinking and cheering crowds are endorsing that kind of thinking, and that's really part of our current moment. Um, but I also, you know, he's plugging into something that, that was not born with him, that is part of American history, and the question is just um, 
how do people in power um, respond to that? Do they try and be unifiers or do they capitalize on that? Well, I mean, that's interesting. I was I was just going to ask, like, what is the role of leadership in helping the citizens in a democracy respond to a real threat? Let's say World War II or something like that. Let's mobilize as a country all out, you know, save the world as we know it and or helping, you know, and if the same president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, nothing, nothing to fear but fear itself, calming irrational fears that create irrational responses to threats that could be be better managed. And I mean, what what would you say has been the role of leadership through some of the most successful or the most difficult moments in our past, Joanne? Well, I think as as you're suggesting, you know, the the president of the United States is a a, a complex figure that. Um, in a sense, wears many hats, and one of them has to do with, you know, executive power and that branch of government. One is more symbolic in that the president sort of represents a single figure that is invested with a kind of power in the United States. And um, I think during those kinds of extreme crises, is supposed to step forward and in some way or another be comforting to everyone, right, that the the president of the United States is supposed to... um, look towards the nation as a whole, the nation as a whole might not agree with that president. And certainly, you know, to say that a president is appealing to the nation is not to suggest that <laughs> there have not been plenty of periods in American history where, despite that kind of appeal, it's very clear that some people love and some people hate that president. But um, this is another thing that we're seeing now that's um, not necessarily unique, but definitely distinctive, which is um, a president that very explicitly is defining us versus them and making that a major part of who they are as a leader, um, this falls into the category of um, norms that we kind of assume, oh, you know, well, presidents act like, if nothing else, presidents of the United States, and who knows what happens behind the scenes, but they they put that hat on for that office. Um, What happens if someone doesn't put that hat on for that office? What happens? And, you know, I don't necessarily know the answer to that. Well, and certainly the the president was speaking to a segment of the U.S. population that really does think it's the end of civilization as we know it. You know, Steve Bannon and his ilk, um, the fellow that wrote that Flight 93 blog post. I don't know if you remember this, but it was one that um, that David Brooks gave one of his annual awards to. And it, Flight 93 was the storm, the cockpit flight on 9-11. And he, he was saying that this is a crisis in our country of such gigantic proportions that it's time to risk everything, all or nothing. Um, vote for Trump. He's the only hope. And, you know, the underlying tone of it was about immigration, like civilization, as we know it, is about to come to an end. Do something. Um, and, and so, I, I mean, the Trump presidency is speaking to a segment of our population that really thinks it is the end of civilization as we know it. Um, and so it it's hard to tell from that perspective whether this is a rational response to a very real threat or whether this is sort of a fear-mongering moment. Right. Well, I, well I, I think it can be both, but but the other side, um, a side that, uh, that I would place myself on, um, there are lots of people who feel 
that the the end of maybe not the end of the world, but the end of democracy. Certainly, in terms of climate change, people talk about the end of the world. So there, there, the stakes are really high. And at the same time, predating God Trump was the the lack of civility in in public life. Uh, Olympia Snow left. Um, uh, a uh, a Republican and I think a by many many liberal Democrats would have said she she was a good senator she could talk to people and we've had senators and congressmen who are leaving because uh, it's it's just not there's no civility and there's a lack of collegiality and that makes it really hard to talk about these things. And that's why so much of my work is trying to bring people together who are sometimes very angry at each other uh, and to try to reduce that bias and uh, create a, a collegial, well, probably the best word is you can res- respect somebody even if you disagree with their point of view. Yeah. I mean, Joanne, you were going to jump in um, a minute ago. Go ahead with your thought. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, it, it, there's no denying um, civility and collegiality in politics are, are on the decline. Um, that's not unique to this moment. Um, I think, uh, speaking as someone who writes about violence and politics going all the way back to the start of the Republic, um incivility and fear-mongering and um, lack of collegiality, from the beginning, to some degree, it was assumed that the system, the constitutional system that was being put in place, was supposed to um, be able to corral that and channel it in ways that would not overturn that system. So, you know, I think in the past, some of what has been different is that people still were buying into the system in a way that although they might have disliked each other and they might have, you know, not wanted to work together, again, as Steve is suggesting, there was a certain amount of respect because the institution itself, people could rely on the institution itself to kind of channel disagreements and provide a process to pull people out of a moment of crisis, which I think, you know, from the very beginning, the the, the first really horrifically contested presidential election was in 1800 and at points in that election and that was between ultimately started out between john adams and thomas jefferson um but ultimately it ended up being between thomas jefferson and really the person who was supposed to be the vice presidential candidate aaron burr and they were tied and the tie couldn't be broken and people were so um upset about what the outcome of that election might mean that they were actually arming in certain states in case they needed to take actual action to take the government in some way. So that was a real crisis. And afterwards, when people asked Jefferson, well, wow, you know what, what would you have done if there had been some kind of crisis? And he said, oh, well, we would have had a convention and we would have essentially tweaked the Constitution, and then it would have just gone back into motion. Hmm. So the, the assumption is the system, you know, whether it's an election or a Supreme Court decision, um, or civil protest in some way, that the system itself can help with 
dissolving those kinds of crises, which in a sense is, is you know, I'm, I'm really intrigued to hear what Steve is saying here, because in a sense, that's what he's talking about is a system intervening to deal with these emotions. It's just, you know, when that system is the U.S. government, that complicates it tremendously. At this point, I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. Unfortunately, as I said before, our phone light is out, so I'm going to ask you to email your question or comment to news at weru.org. Put DF for Democracy Forum in the subject line, and we'll read your question on the air. Um, This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum. Our guests this morning are Joanne Freeman, Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University, and Steve Wessler, Maine, human rights educator, trainer, and advocate specializing in conflict resolution. Our topic today is hate and fear in politics. If you have a question or comment, you you can join our conversation now by emailing us at news at weru.org. We um, will get as many questions on the air as we can, and it looks like we have one now. Um, James, here it is. James Madison um, warned us, this is from Star in Trenton, uh, warned us about mob rule, factionalism, and the rise of demagogues. Facebook and Twitter have become virtual versions of the mob, creating bubbles and echo chambers with confirmation bias and disinformation. And these encourage both isolation with our own choirs and amplification of disinformation, resentment, and fear. Can we put the cork back in this bottle and encourage more unity, tolerance, and respect within the technology we have at hand? What role do you think technology is playing in the present moment? Mm, Well, that's a really good question. Um, And that does have something to do with the current moment. Um, You can see a similar kind of bubbling of sentiment and anxiety and messy politics happening um, because of the slavery crisis. But what helps to fuel that is the telegraph, because the telegraph, suddenly people are communicating all over the nation. News is spreading faster than ever before. Politicians don't necessarily control the spin. And you, even though, you know, by social media standards, the telegraph is truly antiquated. You know, wow, within an hour, people can learn something. Um, still, that felt like a massive technological change in the eight, late 1840s and 1850s, and that fueled the sort of crisis in politics for that very reason. People were getting all kinds of information, and some of it was good and some of it was bad, and um, there was no, for a time, it, it wasn't well regulated. People didn't know its capabilities. They didn't know how to corral it. So now, absolutely, we're in a moment where um, technology, again, is playing a role in really shaping how American people interact with each other and how they interact with their leaders. If democracy is a conversation between leaders and the American people, any technology that changes that conversation is going to have a huge impact. And so that's certainly where we are, is that I think people are discovering the the strength and, and problems in this form of technology, but we haven't you know, in a sense, we're in a kind of Wild West moment of technology when it comes to social media because, um, and that's why there's a, you know, an ongoing conversation. What do we do about Facebook? You know, how do we regulate? Um, that's precisely where we are right now is we're realizing the power of this form of, of communication, the power of this technology can be dangerous, but we're not quite sure what to do about that yet. And so, what to do about that without violating 
fundamental American rights of expression and communication. Joanne, was the the, um, nascent TV broadcast medium a factor in McCarthyism, which was another moment of fear and paranoia that kind of swept through political culture? Well, for sure. And and on that same note, think about the 1960s and people seeing writing on their TV. Mm -hmm. That's the same kind of a moment where there's a technology and suddenly people are communicating and getting information in a way that they didn't before. And that opens up new possibilities. On the one hand, that could be positive, right, because our our government is supposed to be grounded on public opinion. But boy, that's that's really powerful. So that opens up also a lot of avenues that, that certainly are unpredictable. Steve commented uh, this and how it plays out in people's real lives because I've heard people say, like I don't go on Reddit, but I say if you go over there, you find chat rooms where people with very hateful views are finding reinforcement um, among like-minded people that they could never have found before. If If you go back maybe 40 years, maybe less, maybe 30 years, and try to think how does somebody who is filled with hate and is and is attracted to violence how do they find out who to talk to um people aren't it, it was very difficult and then um when uh, the internet came it started to make it much much easier um and have websites and you could be anonymous if 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 you wanted to be but now, so much of this is person to person or person to many, to many persons, and so uh, we've been talking about the ability of of leaders to um, to push um, significantly peop- the level of bias. But it's it's happening in local communities. It's happening um, in all, all over the state where uh, r- rumors are spread. I mean, the, the number of times that I have heard that uh, from longtime American citizens that Somali and other immigrants are getting free cars from the city. Um, you know, cities where that's happened have, have um, put things in the newspaper, they've, you know, Besides, no free cars. No right? free cars. It's 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 still it still exists out there. And one of the reasons it still exists out there because there's a because they're they're hearing about it, um, not just verbally, but they're they're reading about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, um, I worry that it extends the life of negative stereotypes. So, Joanne, historically, like one of the times that these hate and fear things got a little out of control, we kind of had a civil war, right? And I hope we're not headed for that. But how did these extreme moments in our history sort of self-correct in the past? Well, I mean, often, as I I sort of alluded to before, um, the system does what the system should, you know? So... um, an election happens. There's a moment that's building up to this extreme sentiment. An election happens, and people are willing to step back and allow, sort of wait to see what it means that this election happens. And basically, the system goes into effect, or um, a Supreme Court decision, which comes down, and people might vehemently disagree with it. But there's, again, a 
sense that that's for now what the system has done and will now go on and continue to fight through the system and to also make our thoughts known outside of the system. But still, the assumption is that there's some fundamental thing that the system, the political system, can do that people are invested in. You know, there's a, in a sense, there's a big we that con- is con- uh, constituent of people who are Americans who believe in that system. Um, that the system itself helps. Part of the system, as I suggested a moment ago, is um, the right to protest, right? So people absolutely have rights. Rights are violated. They have a right to step up and to publicly protest the fact that they're being denied their rights. That's part of our system as well. Um, But all of those things, I think, in the past have ultimately worked to channel at least some popular will to the point that people feel that it's the system is capable of change it's doing what it should do which is shifting changing sort of taking stock of where the nation is and at least in tiny steps moving in that direction you're tuned to the democracy forum on weru this morning this is ann luther from the league of women voters of maine our guests this morning are joanne freeman professor of history and american studies at yale university and Steve Wessler, Maine human rights educator, trainer, and advocate specializing in conflict resolution. Um, We're taking your questions or comments now, but our phone line is out, so if you have a question or comment, you can join the conversation by emailing news at weru.org. Put DF, Democracy Forum, in the subject line, and we'll put your question on the air. We're talking about um, hate and fear and politics, and I mean, Fear, at least, is a pretty normal human emotion, um, and uncertainty and fear kind of go together. So given that this is sort of n- normal, a normal part of human existence, and and is a particular reaction, according to the scientists we quoted earlier, about um, race and ethnicity, and historian David Bennett postulates that when we've had these rising fears of immigrants in the past, the fear dissipated because immigration slowed down. Um, so how much of this has to do with compassion for people who fear immigrants and um, is a public policy solution to have some compassion for those fears? I, providing people with information not by lecturing to them, but by having them listen and have exchanges with the people that they're scared about and angry is it builds compassion and it um, and it and suddenly the stereotypes disappear. I mean, one of the things in the dialogues that that I've been doing with longtime Americans and immigrants is we, we analyze the, the stereotypes. Um, and, uh, and they just, they just melt away when, when you start analyzing them. Um, I think uh, the, the two stereotypes that are often said about immigrants that come together uh, um, are uh, immigrants don't work, and they're taking our jobs. So, w- which is it? Um, so sometimes they just don't make any sense at all because they're at cross purposes with e- with each other. 
so we, we, we need to create um, dialogue not only at the level of Congress and other important points of leadership, but we need to do it in communities. And we need to do it in schools. And, and it works. Um, it, it takes time. But it, it can change, change people's views of what they thought they feared and what they were angry about. I've sort of got two, two questions that are p- piling off that. I mean, one is how do you take that kind of a face-to-face human interaction solution and ramp it up into a massive public policy cure for a huge present moment problem. And the other one, was, I'll have to think of while you answer that because I forgot what it was while we were talking. Well, that's, that's hard because doing this, doing this work um, requires grant money. Now, in the work I do, I'm training other people to facilitate these dialogues that'll start happening in the new year, and and it will be um, uh, where there won't be any cost to to doing this. But but even with that, you have to have some some organizational ability. Uh, and it's I'll, not. Go ahead, Joanne. It's not a government solution. But go ahead. I was just going to add to that that um, p- part of that, um, and I believe this to be true, is that that change uh, and improvement it's, it's going to come from the local not the national uh-huh. you know it, it's going to be whether it's it's what steve is suggesting um people interacting on a certain level locally so that some of the assumptions that they have that are false get overturned whether that means people coming together on a local level to engage in political conversation and support a cause together um, and get people into office that they want to be into office, which again is part of the system. I, I think that the local is the thing to focus on for change and, and personal interaction and people building networks. And it starts creating, whether it's on Facebook or it's just person to person, people start spreading very different kinds of information. Mm-hmm. Um, I had in one of my dialogues, um, uh, in a community where there was a lot of anger toward immigrants and um, and just before we started I was sitting next to a colleague who is um, is Muslim and wearing a, uh, a hijab and uh, traditional dress and uh, this white American woman comes up and says so can you can you really tell me exactly what you do for ISIS so well, Absolute silence in in the room, and so we got past that. Um, she, in that first session of two and a half hours, was stereotype after stereotype after stereotype. At the end of the second session, which was the last one, we asked I asked everybody to just say what have they learned um, from this, and she, with this tremendous. Um, sense of emergency said I need somebody to come and teach me Portuguese so everybody is is sitting and say you know what has happened here and of course it's my job to say so why Mm -hmm. and she said because it's important to me to be able to speak to my new Angolan friends person to person Mm -hmm. 
six months later, she was came to another dialogue sponsored by different different groups. And before we started, some white white woman was talking about um, how uh, people say uh, it was a particular type of stereotype, and um, and this woman, the woman who thought that my colleague was part of ISIS, said, "Oh, I heard the same thing last week too." And I just turned around and said, "You can't talk like that. I've got friends who are Muslim, and they're not like that." So. You know, it's it's not one at a time because it multiplies. But yeah. um, but but your point of how do you spread spread this um, does require some amount of organization and, and funding. Here's another listener question, which is right along the lines of what we're talking about. There is a psychological theory the questioner says called the contact hypothesis that says that prejudice is reduced through contact with people of different backgrounds, opinions, and cultures. Contact with others increases empathy, and isolation kills empathy. So how can we build real time in communities where we have contact with one another, especially in our rural communities where some of this is so, left to? So what's really important about the contact theory is to add a little bit more. It's all about the content of your contact. So if, if, if you are living um, next door in a low-income community to immigrants and you don't like immigrants, you're likely not going to get much information. Uh, one, you may not be able to speak the language, but even if they speak English, it's, it's about meaningful contact. And there, there, are lo- there are lots of different programs around this state. There's a, a wonderful one in Augusta that brings people together to help, help each other, that um, shares meals together. Um, that they're all the work I do is ultimately trying to reduce the risk of violence and giving people strategies about how do you intervene with your family members and your and and your friends. So, it's about it's about the content of that contact. And if that contact is, if you're unable to um, create empathy for people and true understanding, that that contact isn't going to do much. Right. Um, so, you know, we're coming into the last few minutes of the show, and I want to turn the, con- the conversation. We've been talking about this a little bit, but, you know, how do we get by this moment, and what can each of us do personally and politically in in order to help our country through this moment? Um, Joanne has already talked a little bit about political consequences, elections coming up, and participating in the system, and I want to just give you a chance to reinforce that message a little bit more, Joanne, and then also to talk about uh, what we can do in our communities, because you're saying also that the... um, the roots of this solution are going to be local. So go ahead, Joanne. Right. Well, I, I do um, think one positive thing um, about our current moment um, is that Americans of all kinds are engaged in the political process to a degree that I haven't seen during my lifetime. Uh, I wasn't around <laughs> in the 60s, so I can't speak for that. But um, people are really engaged. They understand the importance of politics. 
um, uh, protesting and, you know, the, the many walks being held and people showing up to town halls and people calling their member of Congress, all of these things in a really aggressive kind of a way, all of that is good um, because that's it, ultimately that starting locally and building is going to be the way to create change. That's right there is where it is. So, um, you know, I, I think just as we're sort of suggesting here, you start locally, you start locally, you start in school. You know, I think it's important for people, kids to be taught in school, um, sort of how the American political system works and what the Constitution is. You know, that one of the weird things to me about this moment is um, every once in a while something happens and I think, huh, that's what Thomas Jefferson was saying. And yeah, I guess that's true. One of the things he said was, you know, Americans really need to understand history and they need to understand government because ultimately they control the fate of the nation. So they need to understand its workings to be able to recognize threats to it, which, you know, is something that's not new and it's out there in the world floating around. But I certainly find myself thinking about it as a professor and a teacher um, that there is a sense, I think, that people um, don't necessarily understand what democracy is or how it works or what, how threats to it operate as threats to it. So I'll, I'll just throw that into the mix. I'll be eager to hear what Steve has to say, but I'll throw that into the mix of things that can be happening on all levels, but certainly also on a local level in schools um, to help move us towards a future that doesn't look like the present. Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I find it interesting that people's perception about where the threat is coming from are really very different, di- differently divided, um, depending perhaps on their understanding of how government and systems work. Um, but right. So, uh, Joanne, you, you are absolutely right that advocacy on. I was going to say both sides, but perhaps many sides, is really critically important. Um, but Because uh, that can make change. It can change the, the complexion of, of which party is in control of, of, of the presidency or Congress. But, but there's another kind of conversation which is huge, because when you're, when you're marching and when you're um, sending letters, um, you are doing so with people who have your same views. We, we need to get people to start talking together um, across those, those lines um, and, um, and to start creating empathy going in, in multiple directions and ultimately getting people to have the courage to speak up whether it's in the supermarket, whether it's in a family setting, whether when you're in a job, uh, in your workplace, when somebody is saying something that is uh, degrading and uh, and perhaps worse, to say, please not around me, mm-hmm. or to have or provide information with people, because the one thing that's been clear for the, the decades that I've done this work is the expression of degrading language and stereotypes is never static. It's always moving. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it's, it's um, most of the time moving toward greater anger, fueled by that fear, 
and then some number of people are going to do what they did at the the the, the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh yeah. or the Black Church in South Carolina. Yeah. Um, we have if to start I could somewhere. just throw in a, a random idea, which is just more of a wish than anything else, but, you know, we've been talking about um, how social media and the Internet and, and technology are creating silos and fueling hate. Wouldn't it be amazing if someone figured out a way to use those same things to do just what Steve is saying and get people to talk across different lines? Wouldn't it be wonderful if there was some way to use these things for that positive purpose? to call each other out. We're out of time this morning. It was a great conversation. Thank you both for joining us. Joanne Freeman, Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University, and Steve Wessler, Maine human rights educator, trainer, and advocate specializing in conflict resolution. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum this morning, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thanks to Amy Brown, our engineer at WERU. Thanks to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic and to for links to other readings in this area. Um, you can learn there at www.lwvme.org about other shows in our series. And you can email us at downeast at lwvma.org for comments or suggestions for future shows. We're taking December off. Tune in at this time next month for a favorite show from our archive. And we'll see you back here in January when we'll be at a new time. Thanks, everybody.